This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. This is Pacific Beach on ABC Radio Australia. Today on the show, online gambling takes off in Papua New Guinea, but there are concerns. Not everyone is aware of the financial impacts. There is a lot of risk involved with gambling. I tell people, but not a lot of people tend to listen to my advice. And in New Zealand, scientists are studying if Tonga's volcano erupt- volcanic eruption last year is still wreaking havoc on global weather patterns. The volcano would have had a couple of impacts on climate. This could have had an influence on tropospheric weather, especially on the formation and the fate of tropical cyclones. We also head to Sydney, where a unique exhibition showcases a modern take on ancient tapa cloth. All that and more today on the show. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. So glad to have your company. Though Australia will rapidly scale up security and development cooperation with Kiribati. The announcement was made by Foreign Minister Penny Wong in Tarawa yesterday, where she met with Kiribati President Tanis Maumau. The bilateral talks come at a significant time ahead of Kiribati's formal return to the Pacific Islands Forum. And amid fears, China is trying to gain sway in the country. Joining us now to look at Australia's agreement with Kiribati is journalist, uh, local journalist there, Ramon Ramon. Maori Ramon. Maori, uh, Priyanka, how are you doing? Greetings from Tarawa. Yes, I'm doing very well and very uh, interested to hear your thoughts on this agreement. Um, now, it was quite ra- wide ranging, this agreement between Australia and Kiribati. But to me, there were a couple of things that stood out. One was the support of to police, and that included peacekeeping training. Did that come as a surprise to you? Was that something that Kiribati has been trying to get support for for a while? Um, in fact, uh, I think, yes, the, 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 that has been in the pipeline for, for some time. I, I, I did work for government in uh, uh, the, the, the former career, career that I had, and, and, I, and I remember Kiribati tried to, 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 to penetrate or participate in, in world peacekeeping, right? Fiji and Tong and, and other nations have done that, and Kiribati wanted to do that capacity. And I think um, with the history with Australia as a development uh, partner, you know, um, they, they, they've been helping the police. So I think maybe if it's... Maybe it's new this year, but uh, something that is certainly not uh, uh, unique to Kiribati. Mm. Um, and I wanted to ask you, Ramon, about the timing of all of this. Um, I mean, it's hard, it's hard to talk about Kiribati's foreign policy without mentioning China as well. well what influence do you think um, China might be having on, on these talks and, and why they might be happening now? Well, I, I think, that I, you know, we cannot ignore that the big elephant. I think we know that, you know, things have been ramped up uh, in, in, in the region now, especially in Kiribati. Now, now that China is here, I mean, China resumed relations with China in, in 2019, just, just a couple of years back. And, and now it's, it's, it's a growing relationship. And I think it's, it's worried a lot of people, you know, from Canberra to, to Washington. So I think uh, the, the, this visit is, is quite significant, maybe to counter that efforts or not. But I think uh, we must not forget the, the fact that Australia has been the longest and, and, and the traditional partner for Kiribati. Uh, before China has ever has ever been here, so whether they've ramped up this, uh, you know, cooperation or, or, or assistance, I, I think it's just 
part of the, the relationship. I mean, sometimes things tend to to to, to get boring or, or you know uh, need a little bit of uh, you know getting alive. But I think uh, that that that's all part of the relationship that uh, Kiribati and Australia enjoy. Yes, yes, because it is interesting. Yeah, you mentioned that 2019, um, I guess, switch of allegiances um, that Kiribati had. First, it was recognized Taiwan and, and then switched its allegiances to China. Uh, very similar. I think, I think just a, a few weeks after Solomon Islands did the same. Um, and, and that context is important, isn't it? Because Australia has said it's going to build a wharf on Canton. Can you can you speak about the uh, significance of Canton, particularly? I, I understand China had plans there as well. Well, I, I think Canton is not news. I mean, people have already knew that you know it, the, the, the China's offer to to rehabilitate you know one of the airstrip there has has caused a lot of um, you know concerns by 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 analysts and and and, and people around the world um but um i think australia doing doing this you know it, it could it, it is in a sense sort of like countering that act because china has uh, you know the government of kiribati has uh, has you know announced that china would will rehabilitate the the the, the, the airstrip there now we we're, we're hearing that uh, you know Australia is, um, you know, upgrading the wharf there. I mean, like I said, Australia has been one of the longest uh, partners here and one of the areas of cooperation or assistance that Australia has helped us uh, in is in maritime cooperation, you know, maritime security. So, you know, the Canton is, is quite significant for Kiribati. It's, it's one, it's quite remote in a sense. And and I think, um, you know, the the... the we can see it both on 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 two two sides, whether it's countering that act or just um, you know uh, from from China or just the continuing that cooperation that that Australia has been doing with Kiribati. Mm, yes, it's very interesting to see these movements. They seem um, it seems like a tit for tat, but I guess as you as you mentioned there, Ramon, um, I'm sure Australian diplomats will say it's just continuing that that relationship, that long-standing relationship that's always been there. Um, I wanted to ask you yeah. about another comparison, Ramon, because you were there last year, I believe, during China's foreign minister Wang Yi's visit to Kiribati. And I remember you noted a somewhat hostile reception to media and the involvement in media covering those those meetings between Wang Yi and, and, um, and government there in Kiribati. How was it this time with, with um, Foreign Minister, Australia's Foreign Minister, Wang's visit to Kiribati yesterday? Did you notice any differences, any similarities? Um, well, I think the only difference uh, uh, is that Wang Yi's visit happened during lockdown, during a pandemic, you know, when, when Kiribati's borders were in lockdown. I think now things are back more back to normal and uh, access, you know, had people have more access and, you know, it's just, it's just back to normal now. So that's the difference now. But I think uh, the, 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 the reception to, towards the media, um, you know, a little bit more. One one thing that really struck me was that you know, they, the, when they had their bilateral talks yesterday afternoon, the president of Kiribati and the, the minister of foreign affairs, Penny Wong, um, it took them quite a while. You know, more, uh, more than what was scheduled, and so the media had to really wait for. You know, and the, and the media is not used to this. But uh, one thing that struck struck me was that. When Penny Wong came out, and she, she she said she apologized to the media, saying sorry for taking that long, uh, you know. So I think that those kind of warm, you know, reception to to the media and warm, you know, uh, is is kind of is, is very very welcomed. Uh, unlike the the the, the, the arrival of the, the the foreign minister from China, 
I think security was 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 much more um, strict. I mean, we were even just we were not even allowed to, to get a photo whether bilateral was happening, you know. And 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 for, for for this visit, we had that opportunity after that bilateral, to, and so the media was given that. So I think we had more of that access than than the Chinese uh, visit. Um, but, you know, different governments uh, operate in different ways and, and that's just how things are. Mm, that's very true. If you are just tuning in to Pacific Beat this Wednesday morning, we're speaking to Kiribati journalist Ramon Ramon about the recent visit. Well, just yesterday, the visit of Australia's Foreign Minister Penny Wong to Kiribati to meet with President Tanes Mamo. Um, there were security and development cooperation deals signed, um, a seeming ramp up of, of those um, security ties, particularly seeing uh, training being outlined for police. That includes peacekeeping training. Um, I w- wanted to speak to you more, Ramon, about the context here. Um, we'll get to two things. Firstly, um, there's PIF, and then we will start. W- um, but let's start, in fact, with the very, I guess, shocking dismissal of the High Court Judge uh, David Lamborn. Um, that happened last year. David Lamborn is an Australian uh, citizen. Mr. Lamborn told the ABC that he hoped Senator Wong would raise ongoing threats to the rule of law in Kiribati during meetings with Mr. Uh, Mauma, the president of Kiribati. Now that comes as after I think several judges were were, um, were dismissed there in Kiribati. Do we know if if that was raised at all? Are there concerns around the rule of law in Kiribati still? Well, it certainly is. Um, there, there certainly is uh, big, big concerns in the, in the judiciary, uh, uh, you know, uh, arm of government here in Kiribati. I mean, I think we all know what happened. Um, the, all the, the, the legitimate court judges that were appointed have, have all been removed and, and, and now installed uh, what the government think is, is, is the new. But, you know, while we still have some order within the high court here in Kiribati, I mean, we, we still have a, a, a non-functioning uh, court of appeal, right? So uh, the, the services that the people need here is still not being addressed, you know, especially on the judiciary side of things. And even with the high court, um, the... the, 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 the its operation cannot operate with just one chief justice, which they installed, the government installed themselves. So there have been, you know, uh, plans or not plans, but part of the the, 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 the high court um, working arrangement that there are, there there be other, you know, puny judges to 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 help uh, with the cases. I mean, they, as 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 is as you know, there have been. Um, amounting cases that, uh, that 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 needs to be heard in the court, and with just one sitting um, judge, that that that's not addressing the help. So I'm not sure if this is something that was discussed um, in the bilateral between uh, the president of Kiribati and the, the foreign minister. It is quite a, a sensitive issue. I I think if 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 this if, if, if the Commonwealth of Australia is really concerned about the rule of law in the region, I think maybe that should have been, uh, you know, discussed. But uh, uh, from based from what, what, what was presented to the media yesterday, uh, nothing uh, along that line was, I, I think, was, was ever discussed mm. um, unless it was discussed. Yes, very interesting. Perhaps behind closed doors, um, away from journalists, um, who knows what what might be on the table then. Um, And and now I want to head to this other um, context here, which is the Pacific Islands Forum, the region's largest diplomatic body. Kiribati was 
out of that body for for some time. It stepped back over some uh, a leadership dispute. It since signaled that it stepped. It's going to return return to the forum. In fact, it's supposed to formally return um, this week for the special forum leaders meeting. Is that significant for for Kiribati, and and do you think it's significant for significant reason why Australia might have made this meeting at this time? Well, yeah, I, I think this is very significant. I mean, a lot of people in Kiribati were not happy for pulling out from a body that you know we were a part of. We 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 had that sense of belonging to something, you know, to to an organization or to a body that that looked after us. Of course, there were grievances and all this, and you know, they they. they Things like this happen, and they 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 are settled in in, in the appropriate ways. But you know, I think Kiribati took that drastic step of, step of um, moving out. But anyway, that that has all changed now. Um, what we know is that when the, the Prime Minister of Fiji, who is currently chair of the the the, the, the Pacific Islands Forum, when he made that first visit to to Kiribati. He came aboard an Australian uh, executive plane, you know, government plane, and and it's I think it's the same plane that Penny Wong came in <laughs> today. So I think this is all part of an effort, concerted effort by regional leaders here, and especially um, Australia as a regional powerhouse here, you know, and and, and, and regional powers and player, you know, it's on them. So I think, you know, this by by noon today. Prime Minister Penny Wong leaves Kiribati, and I think on Thursday our president will leave for for the special ladies meeting. So I think it's we can't say things are falling back into places, you know, uh, as as they were. But I think we're we're we're, we're heading in that direction, and uh, I think Australia has played uh, quite a, a, a good uh, you know act of diplomacy in, in in this sense because you know things are all happening within um, the. So the visit here is quite significant in terms that, you know, it's it's been a while that Kiribati has received uh, such a high level delegation from Australia, but no, it's happening also on the 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 the, the dawn of uh, the Pacific Leaders Meeting Retreat Meeting, which is happening in in Suva uh, uh, this week. Yes, yes, very interesting time, and yes, um, I guess Kiribati is is becoming, uh, you know, the center of of these um, geopolitical these regional discussions with Fiji, as you mentioned, Fiji's prime minister visiting just recently to apologize. And now um, Australia's foreign minister. Interesting times there in Kiribati. Uh, Ramon, thank you so much for taking us through it all. Thank you, Priyanka, for having me. All my best wishes to you. Thank you. Thank you. That was Ramon, Ramon, a local journalist there in Kiribati, giving us the latest about that visit by uh, Australian foreign minister Penny Wong in Tarawa yesterday. Now to Papua New Guinea. The rise of online gambling in PNG is being fueled by love of sport and advances in internet connectivity. But while the allure of winning brig draws punters in, experts warn there can be risks. Marion Farr delves into the world of sports betting to see why it's become so popular. Superstar in the Bundesliga. For lay resident Jotham Aaron, it all began with a passion for soccer. I watched the uh, European leagues and I always noticed the Bet365, like advertisement would always flash on the field. That's how he first found out about online gambling. From 2017 onwards, that's it. I got a Visa card and all that and I created an account with them and I've been betting ever since. 
The platform allows users to bet their money on the outcome of a sporting event. While his favourite is still soccer, he now also bets on the NRL and other matches. Tennis, I love tennis, so I'm always like betting on tennis on the major tournaments. Wimbledon, Australian Open, US Open, French Open, that. Boxing and MMA fighting. When Mr Aaron places a bet online, it can be exciting. If I'm wagering a small amount, then like, I just feel excited and like hopeful that my bet can come in. But when there's more money at stake, the experience is nerve-wracking. If it's a football match and I tip a team to win and I put a, like, a large amount of money on it and the payout's going to be big, and maybe the last 10 minutes, then I just like walk around and just occasionally just glance at the screen and stuff to find the result. For him, online betting has become a regular hobby. What I like about it is, well, you can just bet anytime on anywhere, just at home. Mr. Aaron now runs a Facebook group where people discuss tips and strategies for online gambling. A lot of people inbox me and then they ask me, like, how do I get involved with Battery 365, so and so, and um, I advise them how to and even assist them in creating their own accounts. Dr. Amanda Watson is an expert in digital technology in the Pacific. She says internet access across PNG has increased rapidly since 2007. The access enables many good things, such as people using the internet to research things and find out accurate information from reliable sources regarding health, educational resources and so on. But of course, the internet access can also enable uh, problematic or challenging things or things that people are not familiar with because it's new, such as scams, uh, such as fraud and financial scams, as well as the, the betting that you're referring to. Mr Aaron believes social media is fueling the rise in online gambling around PNG. In his Facebook forum, people hop online to post about their winnings. Like they advertise like winning tickets of people, like they show that, okay, this person with just a 10 kina bet, he has won like 10,000 kina, 5,000 kina. When people see things like that, that they think like, I can do it too. That's how Port Moresby resident Eddie Tito got into online betting three years ago. So it got my interest and then I decided to sign up for one or two of the online betting platforms. Over the years, he estimates he's lost up to 300 US dollars through online gambling. But it's not enough to deter him completely. I probably pay my luck on some other platforms. Maybe luckily come my, my way on other platforms. And the rise in online gambling is not just happening in PNG. Around the world, internet betting is becoming increasingly popular due to its accessibility. But some experts say that can carry serious risks. You can place a bet pretty much anywhere, anytime via your mobile phone with apps or, you know, on your laptop via their websites. And their apps are also very easy to use. They're very streamlined. Associate Professor Alex Russell is a researcher with the Experimental Gambling Research Laboratory in Australia. The ability to bet, you know, anytime, even when you're a bit out of control, perhaps, um, with no one really watching over your shoulder to make sure that you're not betting more than you should, um, and the ability to do it with money that's not yours uh, via credit, it, those are some of the main concerns there. Professor Russell says online gambling can become especially addictive when people use it to escape. 
you're experiencing, you know, sort of hardships and you need to get out of it, then uh, gambling is often a very common way to do it because you can unwind. You can forget about life's issues while you're placing a few bets and um, waiting for them to come in. On average, do most people who gamble online lose money or make money over time? Most people will come out behind. He says the playing field isn't always fair. Some bookies will say, uh, you're coming out ahead, we're going to restrict the size of the bets you can place, or we're going to not allow you to use promotions or, or things like that, and even cut you off completely because we think that you're trying to rig the system against us. So while you should be able to come out ahead more than you do, that's not necessarily the case. In 2007, Papua New Guinea passed legislation to allow overseas gambling websites to register and operate in PNG with a licence. But Professor Russell says it can be a difficult space for governments to regulate. Sometimes overseas gambling sites may operate illegally in a country and there's a risk that users won't get paid. As an example, if I were to put money into an online casino overseas and then they you know, disappeared um, and took my money with them, um, even if I had their contact details and things like that, the Australian authorities would say, look, we can try, but there's not really much we can do about this because they're not an Australian business. They shouldn't have been offering their service to you and, and they were dodgy for that. He says it's important to gamble responsibly. Things like not betting impulsively and regularly checking your statements to see how much you've won or lost is a good place to start. There are more and more tools becoming available. One of the big ones that's, um, that's popping up is setting limits. That's the advice lay resident Jotham Aaron also gives to people who come to him for betting tips. There is a lot of risk involved with gambling. I tell people, but not a lot of people tend to... Listen to my advice. I mean, the main thing is like you gamble responsibly and never bet more than you can afford to lose. That was a PNG resident at Jotham Aaron ending that report by Marion Farr. Time to find out what's making news around the Pacific. And to do that, we're joined by reporter Carl Evans. Good morning, Carl. Good morning, Priyanka. Now, let's start off in Fiji. Former Prime Minister Frank Bainimarama has been questioned again by authorities. Can you tell us the latest? Yeah, so FBC has reported that uh, he was questioned and released, uh, questioned then released at the uh, CID, the Criminal Investigations Department headquarters uh, in Suva again on Monday night. And that was in relation to some insightful comments made uh, in a press release. So by all reports, it was another long interrogation. Uh, he arrived at about 3.30 p.m. Uh, it was dark when he left, did not make any comments when leaving the station. And, uh, and as we know, it was the second time he's been questioned by authorities uh, in the last fortnight with his last session. Uh, lasting about seven hours. Yes, yes, we were reporting on that uh, yeah, a couple of weeks ago. Still no charges, though? No, it doesn't appear to be. Uh, his lawyer did make a comment and said question continued uh, yesterday, uh, and obviously that follows that three-year expansion. Uh, he was recently uh, given a three-year suspension from Parliament, that is, uh, followed that by that unusual apology uh, on the Fiji First Facebook page. So, yeah, a lot, lot seems to be happening uh, in the world of Mr. Bainu Marama at the moment. Yes, indeed, and we will um, keep up to date on on what what outcome is from those um, various inves investigations there um, by police. 
Yeah, interesting times. Um, now let's head here. Well, well, let's stay here in Australia, I guess. Um, in, in Tasmania, this interesting case, seasonal workers have been evacuated from an overcrowded property. What's happened? Yeah, another interesting one. So it's alleged more than 40 seasonal workers were found to be living uh, in the same shearwater property uh, following, following an inspection in the state's northwest. So this was actually reported by the ABC uh, yesterday. And, uh, and this inspection was carried out by local authorities, including police and the fire department, as well as the local council. And they said the living conditions actually put the safety uh, of the workers at significant risk and, uh, and was potentially life-threatening as well. Now, mm. specifics weren't given uh, as to exactly what was going on within this property, um, but the council believes there was an abject failure of process uh, to allow it to happen in the first place. Yes, indeed, because these seasonal workers obviously come through the program um, and there has been ongoing issues around the accommodation. I mean, some it must be said, a lot of seasonal workers do have a very, um, you know, pleasant and benefit from their experience in Australia. But this isn't the first time we've heard of particularly accommodation issues. Um, do we know if they'll, if anything's coming out of this? Have there been any charges, any investigations proposed? Yeah, so interestingly, it's actually led the, the mayor of uh, Latrobe down there to actually call for action. He says the guidelines need to be altered to, to basically ensure that accommodation providers can comply with council standards. I guess at a federal level, it kind of get those standards kind of get lost as it trickles down through the different governments. Um, and luckily, w- th- those workers have been given alternate uh, accommodation in the meantime. It's also worth pointing out that an appeal has been lodged um, from that accommodation provider as well. So it'll be interesting to see how that all plays out. Yes, yes, indeed. And um, yeah, it is it is a shame when we hear these cases of seasonal workers potentially being exploited or not having a good time in Australia, considering that they come here mm. to you know, provide very important and, and, you know, in some instances, the only um, employers who, employees who are there um, working on those farms to get food on our table at the very, at the very end of the day. So, um, yeah, sad to hear when they're not treated so well when they come to help us out here in Australia. Um, now to some, well, fun news. Another celebrity has made their way to the Pacific. This time it's Snoop Dogg. Uh, he's in Fiji. Are you a fan, Kyle? Are you happy to hear that he's a bit closer, <laughs> closer to us? I'm a big fan of uh, of Snoop Dogg. No, very much uh, one of the, the the key artists of my generation uh, <laughs> growing up. And uh, yeah, I still think back to his uh, that Super Bowl performance. Well, two years ago now, which is got us in well, over a bit over twelve months ago now, which is incredible to think. But uh, yeah, one of the greatest performances of my performances <laughs> of my lifetime. No disrespect to Rihanna, she was great as well this year. But um, I digress. No, it appears he uh, according to his social media pages anyway, it appears that uh, he's been in Fiji or might even still be in Fiji. Uh, He's posted a couple of videos, uh, one of which where he's sitting in a car and mentions Fiji twice. And, uh, and the other, he's uh, flying in a seaplane that has a Kokomo Private Island label on it, uh, on it. Sorry, uh, taking in the sights of a uh, of a beautiful beautiful reef. Yeah, so very interesting because you were saying that he's supposed to be in Australia soon, right? Yeah, that's right. He's got a number of upcoming shows uh, in Australia scheduled for March. He's uh, he's going to be playing right here in Melbourne. Actually, my my partner's going to that show. Shout out to her. I'm, she's very excited for that one. <laughs> she's going to see the Backstreet Boys as well. Actually, so <laughs> oh, really? there's a few, a few big shows yeah. coming up. 
But uh, so yeah, maybe uh, Snoopy's he's soaking up a bit of a uh, bit of sun beforehand. Yeah, well, Fiji is a common, I guess, um, midway destination, a stopover between uh, America and Australia. Um, but it seems like he's yeah taking the scenic route, going to uh, Kokomo and and um, yeah seeing the sights there in Fiji. Very interesting to see what will happen. Maybe he's filming something. Who knows? Who knows? But we, we, we if you if you have any Snoop Dogg sightings, if you're in Fiji, do get in touch at ABC Pacific. We'd love to hear your encounters with the man. He seems like a pretty approachable guy as yeah. well, Snoop Dogg. I mean, I'm sure he's got a massive entourage around him, but I reckon if you could chat to him, he'd be a, he'd be a pretty nice guy. Yes, yes. We have heard from people who've met Zac Efron in Papua New Guinea, people who've met Will Smith in Vanuatu. Why not Snoop Dogg in Fiji? <laughs> um, thanks, Carl, for the stories. Thank you, Priyanka. That was Kyle Evans bringing us the latest from around the Pacific. But don't go anywhere. After a short break, we'll take you to New Zealand, where researchers are trying to find out the connection between Tonga's devastating Hunga Hapai uh, volcanic eruption, La Hunga, Hunga Tonga Hunga Hapai, sorry, volcanic eruption last year. They're trying to find the connections between that and weather events that we're even seeing today, like Cyclone Gabrielle. And we'll also head to Sydney later in the show to take you to a tapa exhibit. Celebrate the pride of the Pacific. You know, we're proud of our country and our heritage. Stay up to date with all the latest sporting news. So emotional every time you go out there and you sing the, you know, the national anthem. And hear inspiring stories from some of the Pacific's finest athletes. I've grown so much confidence within myself and I've never thought I would be the player that I am today. Watch That Pacific Sports Show Wednesday nights at 7 PNG time on ABC Australia. You are listening to ABC Radio Australia. This is Pacific Beat on your Wednesday morning. My name is Priyanka Srinivasan. Researchers believe there could be a link between the deadly recent cyclone Gabriel and last year's volcanic eruption in Tonga. The Hunga Tonga Hunga Hapai eruption propelled about 58,000 Olympic, Olympic swimming pools worth of seawater into the Earth's stratosphere. And that water vapor is thought to be acting as a greenhouse shield. Well, that's the theory at least, and it's being examined by New Zealand's National Institute of Water and Atmospheric Research, who'll be spending the next couple of years modelling the vapour's effects. Nick Fogarty spoke to the Institute's Principal Atmosphere and Climate Scientist, Dr Olaf Morgenstern, who started by telling him about the origins of the research. This is a report that has been commissioned, I think, by the parties to the Montreux Protocol. The Montreux Protocol is this... Um, treaty of, which was signed in 1987 to protect the ozone layer and the parties are the governments of the world, including Australia and New Zealand. The report is in a planning phase. We haven't written the first word and most of the research hasn't been done yet. So the hypothesis is that um, <clears throat> the volcano would have had a couple of impacts on climate, the magnitude of which we want to investigate and whether or not this could have had an influence on tropospheric weather, especially on the formation and the fate of tropical cyclones. Uh, so one mechanism is that the, the, the volcano has spewed a very large amount of water vapor into the stratosphere. So, I mean, we don't know of any eruption in the modern era that has created a similar amount of water in the stratosphere. And so that water spreads around the planet and it acts as a greenhouse gas. It, it traps heat. Yeah, I mean, so the, the initial indication that I've read is that it's probably not on the same scale as the anthropogenic global warming, which over a much longer time you know, is also trapping heat, of course. 
but in the short term, it could have a possibly measurable influence on you know, creating a bit of an extra additional warmth in the troposphere. So how much that is and how significant that is, we have to yet determine. In terms of, of the exact science that you'll be looking at, how can you, I guess, isolate the exact effects of, of this volcano and its water vapour from the other global warming that, that is happening around the world? Yeah, so we have, we have, so I'm in a group of people and institutions around the world who have, um, you know, chemistry climate models. So these are models that <clears throat> simulate the climate of the atmosphere or the, or, the, or the climate system that we're living in, including atmosphere and ocean. Uh, and, uh, and, and also they contain a description of atmospheric chemistry. And so, uh, well, so we would have simulations with these models that are the baseline, that means in the absence of the volcanic eruption. And the second might be an ensemble, might be multiple of these simulations. Uh, and then a second group of simulations where we have uh, where we apply a perturbation, so we inject a large amount of water vapor, and we might inject some well, other stratospheric aerosols that are not pure water. They are um, sulfate aerosol. They have a different effect on climate. They cool climate. Um, Vulcano has done that too. So we might have these perturbation experiments, and then we see whether these, uh, the, you know, especially in the in the in the, in the low atmosphere. These two simulations or ensembles of simulations separate whether they have different uh, behavior. You know that depends on this additional forcing. That means the volcanic eruption being applied. And if we can find that, then we can attribute the corresponding effect to the volcano. Is it is it true that this particular warming doesn't really exacerbate uh, the effects of um, existing global warming or, or climate change around the world? Um, well, I mean, so in the short term, this will be an additional warming effect on top of warming due to man-made greenhouse gases. Um, but the difference is that, uh, you know, the water vapor that I'm talking about in the stratosphere is will be there for a couple of years, maybe up to five years or so, and then it'll it'll disappear over time. So, uh, and that's different from the, the global warming induced mainly by CO2, where the CO2 has a much longer residence time of the order of a thousand years or so. And just anecdotally uh, being there in, in New Zealand, how out of the ordinary have these extreme weather events such as Cyclone Gabriel been for this time of year in New Zealand? I mean, you know, fundamentally, I mean, now is, of course, the season when these cyclones sometimes hit. Uh, but nobody here can remember uh, a cyclone quite on the scale of Gabriel. I mean, the, the pictures that, you know, I've seen are, are just completely devastating. It's, I mean, it's devastation on a, on, a, on a scale that we're really not accustomed to. I mean, the, the idea that cyclones come here and, and create uh, some damage, that's not so unusual, but the magnitude of this, of this event is pretty uh, much unprecedented. Also, the, you know, only um, probably at the end of January, we had uh, this big flooding event in Auckland. So this was not Cyclone Gabriel. That was, uh, you know, about 10 days earlier, two weeks earlier. Uh, massive flooding also creating, you know, quite a lot of damage in the Auckland area. Uh, and before that, we had, uh, you know, yet another cyclone which hit. And so in, in some suburbs in Auckland, you would have been flooded three times this summer alone, which I mean, which is pretty much un unprecedented. We have never seen so much, so much rain and flooding and so on, especially in the northern part of New Zealand so far. And of course, Gabrielle, you know, caused havoc all along the northern coast. And then it's it's sort of tail end sort of hit the east coast with a with a vengeance. 
And that was atmosphere and climate scientist Dr. Olaf Morgenstern speaking there to reporter Nick Fogarty. You're listening to Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. Seaweeds are a good source of trace minerals and elements that are not found in other plants. And now the hunt is on to find if the minerals in Australia's brown seaweed could make it a possible food source. ABC reporter Larissa Smith spoke to Deakin University researcher Vanessa Skripchek, who's been researching the topic. I think the idea come from uh, some of my supervisor's previous work. Um, so she's looked a, a lot of it into um, some of the Asian countries and how they have seaweed as part of their diet quite regularly. Uh, and that was something that was missing from uh, Australia and even a lot of other countries around the world. Uh, so it was interesting to see that um, instead of a reliance on imported products, could we possibly um, create an industry in Australia with, with our own local things? So. What species of seaweed did you experiment with? Um, so I had six uh, brown species. So um, they sort of varied. A lot of them were like kelps. Some of them more uh, sort of fibrous browns. Yeah, so I went to list a couple of names. I had Davilia and Aclonia, um, which are probably some of the more common ones uh, around Victoria. And how much seaweed did you collect to get a, enough of a sample to, to start your work? Um, I didn't actually need a lot, so I um, collected a lot more than what I had. So I probably had around, um, say, a kilo of of each species, but, um, yeah, just to have some backups. But the amount that I actually needed for analysis was quite small. It might only be like a couple of grams. And the basis of uh, the aim, what were you looking to find out? Uh, I was just looking to see uh, what dietary minerals are in seaweeds to start with, um, not necessarily how they relate to um, like the dietary needs for humans but just to see what was there first um, and then yeah sort of go from there. What did you find? Uh, So I found like in general like sodium is quite high um, but that's probably to be expected because partly of the seawater and same thing is with iodine so that's probably the most challenging factor we've got going forth. So you looked at 12 minerals all up? Yes, yes. So, um, And how I come about those was mostly looking at food standards, Australia and New Zealand. They're the ones that they've sort of got documented information on. So I've got like recommended dietary intakes of what uh, ways people should be having each day. What is the recommended intake? Because you can have too many minerals in your diet, can't you? Yes, that's, that's one of the things to consider too. Um, so for something like sodium, it's recommended to be around 2,000 milligrams per day. Um, obviously, each mineral varies and a lot of the time it varies for gender and um, age as well. What's the take-home message then? Uh, I think the take-home message is that there's um, definitely a lot of potential with uh, Australian seaweed, both as an industry but also um, looking at it for uh, human health. But I think it's definitely important to be cautious with um, the recommendations because we don't want to tell people to go out and eat seaweed, but then it could be dangerous to them um, you know, otherwise. So things like iodine and sodium, um, we definitely can't be risking having too much of them in our diet. It's interesting hearing the conversations at this symposium because there are there's a lot of research going on into the benefits of seaweed, but uh, at a policy level, what the government is dictating in terms of regulation is at odds with what is required. 
Do you find that it's kind of frustrating as a researcher? Uh, I think it can be because, um, and then a lot of the um, things with seaweed is that um, it's often considered a, like a food product, so it's hard to find information um, for creating regulations even. So a lot of the time you might be suggesting, you know, for example, a certain quantity to consume, but um, we definitely need, I think, those government regulations to back researchers up and perhaps work with them and support them to create some, um, you know, some good levels and some good regulations going forth. What's next for your study? Uh, so the next thing we'll be looking at the other side of this work. So I've looked at the dietary minerals, but now what can be possibly toxic in, in seaweeds that we might have to watch out for before we can turn around and say to people, um, you know, seaweed's great to eat. Is this arsenic? Uh, yeah, arsenic is part of it, but also a lot of the others, like some of the other talks mentioned, like cadmium and lead, uh, mercury, all those sort of things that we don't typically um, have in the human body and we certainly don't want those things to start accumulating. That was Deakin University researcher Vanessa Skripcek speaking there to ABC's reporter Larissa Smith. You're listening to Pacific Beat on your Wednesday morning. It may be an ancient art form, but tapa or bark cloth is being tested in the contemporary art world here in Australia. A Sydney exhibition is showcasing the vibrant fabric made by Umi women in Papua New Guinea's remote Oro province. As Dubrovka Volodya found out, the modern tapa designs have become a source of income for the women and their communities. So we are here at the museum. There are more than 50 works of art here um, made by, I think, 35 women um, from Oro province. Rebecca, if you don't mind just introducing yourself quickly, please. My name's Rebecca Conway and I'm the curator for ethnography um, here at the Chow Track Wing Museum. So behind you here, I can see a tapa. There are some graphic outlines there, filled in with beautiful colours, muted colours, quite earthy colours, but also bright colours. Can you tell me a bit about this particular um, tapa and what it signifies? These are around uh, major themes for the Omi in terms of their um, designs and iconography. To Omi people, the mountains have a really uh, sacred significance and so they feature very uh, much in their design iconography for the decoration of, of their bark cloth. And so what you see are these sharp peaks and contours of the mountains in their um, artworks. And so most of the dyes, the, the, the bark that is used to make the cloth um, come from that forest environment. The inner bark of certain trees is used beaten and felted to make the cloth in quite a laborious process and then it's decorated with various um, plant dyes. So from um, charcoal Based blacks to uh, leaves and sap of certain trees um, that pass through certain processes in order to bring out the brightness and the colours that you see on the works. Bark cloth making has quite a long tradition in the Pacific, um, but there's also been a recent revival. Can you tell me a bit more about this particular exhibit or these particular pieces here? The work in this exhibition is from a customary base. It's also a cutting-edge contemporary in the sense that most of these works um, were produced in the last 20 years by a group of artists who decided that they would establish an artist cooperative in order to market their artwork to the world. 
And now, Rebecca, we've arrived at another um, piece. This one looks quite different. I see different colours. I see different shapes. Can you tell me a bit more about that one? Yeah, so this is one of a number of works by Lila Waramu. In this work, you can see lots of different uh, Umi designs combined. Uh, we have these curlicue designs, which are representative of the Orday vine, which is a um, very prominent um, vine in the rainforests of Umi territory. And then you also get these kind of little almost zigzag-looking um, black uh, design running through. And these are pig hoof prints. Pigs are very important for um, Umi people, as they are for many cultures in PNG. Her line works, so the outlines are her, principally her work. Then she may have an apprentice, a younger artist, a woman of her clan with her, infilling then the design um, with these bright colours and also um, often browns, shades of brown, um, that create this kind of colour palette of the Umi bark cloth. With me here at the museum is Stephen Gagao. Thank you. My name is Stephen Gagao. I'm a cultural researcher. Stephen, tell us about um, tapa as we know it in the Pacific. What is the cultural significance um, of tapa, um, you know, in the Pacific but also in PNG? It's a traditional sort of um, naturally based material that we use to uh, promote our culture and the oneness with the environment. The history is... Um, like we have, nat- the, our, our histories are ancestral, which is the beginning of the first man, first woman came into existence. It's normally about the wear, uh, the decoration, the ornaments that we pride ourselves in. So the history is from the beginning of time, as far as I, I, I know it. And it's very uh, connected to ancestral uh, and traditions of our people. As with uh, colonization, uh, a lot of things uh, traditionally have been sort of uh, either being replaced or, or taken the place of what we used to have uh, in, our, in our customary sort of uh, laws and traditions. But um, the bar, uh, bar cloth uh, designs are now actually getting onto modern materials and fabrics. We still maintain and preserve that culture in a different form, not necessarily bar cloth but on cotton, and, and, and uh, it's actually, we still wear that with pride because it uh, resembles or the, the significance is still maintained and preserved in a different form, not the natural form. And what is the significance of this exhibit? It's uh, promoting culture, our people. And for us, it's about uh, the whole Pacific is one big ocean, and we call it Tokpisin, uh, it's one solwara, meaning that we are one people, and commonalities in culture uh, are there to promote and, and also to tell the world that uh, this is also pride and also part of our heritage that we are, and our identity that we need to promote to the rest of the world. Now that was Stephen Gagao ending that report by Dubrovka Volodya. And that Tapa exhibit will be on show in Sydney's Ian Potter Gallery until November. And with that, it comes to the end of Pacific Beat for your Wednesday morning. 
Hope you're having a good morning. To remind you of our top story, we headed to Kiribati to find out the um, outcome of that meeting between Australia's Foreign Minister Penny Wong and the President of Kiribati, Tanes Mamao. We found out that Australia has committed to ramp up uh, security and development cooperation with the country. We'll also be covering here on ABC Radio Australia that special leaders meeting for the Pacific Islands Forum later this week. Do stay tuned. News is next. Bye.